0: Luke chapter 20. The wrath of God is coming on everyone who does not trust in Jesus. Some of you might wonder why I said that at an outdoor service. (laughs) And if you heard that, And you're confused right now. Bear with me for a few minutes. It gets better. (laughs) Let me just come right out of the gate and ask those of you here who identify as Christians, how often does the wrath of God make it into your gospel presentation? How about your personal testimony? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that everybody goes around with a microphone like I have. <laughs> and I'm not advocating for bullhorn evangelism necessarily. But I wonder how much many of us, when we talk about Christ to people, focus exclusively on the love of God because the wrath of God makes the conversation very uncomfortable. Do you do that? Do you just only talk about what Christ did for you personally? You know, he broke my bad habits or he restored my family or I got off drugs and you leave it there. If that's true, today's text will be a bit uncomfortable. Because today's text is uncomfortable for the very same reason. It begins with Jesus teaching a crowd of people who, by all accounts, are very happy with him. But They' authority. They oppose Him. Half of the text makes what I just said look fun. And it concludes with Jesus then not only shutting down that group of people, but then turning to the crowd and saying that whoever fails to respect him and his mission is going to be crushed. In other words, the wrath of God is coming for those who do not trust in Jesus. And my hope is that this uncomfortable text actually gives you a strange comfort. That by taking a look at the wrath of God and his appointed Savior Jesus, your fear would be in the right place. And that you wouldn't fear the wrath Of those who reject him. Because as we're going to see here, and according to your outline, no one can prosecute Jesus. He's actually the prosecutor and no one can execute Jesus. He is the executioner and he will be respected. Let me read Luke chapter 20, verses one through eight. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is gave you this authority. And I hope you'll understand that wasn't an innocent question. Jesus answered them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Did you believe him? Say all the people for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The first thing Luke is saying here is that you can't prosecute the first explain what, what's going on. Well, first, Jesus in verse 1, make no mistake, is clearly preaching the gospel. It says right there in verse one, he's preaching the gospel, which means there's no mistaking what he's teaching people is that he is God's appointed savior. That's what is being talked about. They give some nuance as to then why he's being opposed. To add some flavor to that, consider the end of the last chapter where the chief priests and the scribes And the principal men of the the people, the ones who are confronting Jesus here, they've been seeking to destroy him. Verse 48, but they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. In other words, the religious leaders want Jesus gone, but the popular vote kind of has them afraid to act out their sin. Nevertheless, They attempt to prosecute Jesus here with this one sentence in chapter 20, verse 2. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you authority. Now, the things they're referring to don't seem to be just his teachings, but also in last chapter when he cleared out the temple. In other words, what Jesus is doing is a lot of reform or attempted reform. And so what they're saying with this question is that this requires authority that we don't think you have. And so Jesus answers a question that actually doesn't play into their game, but instead reveals their motives. He asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. So what does that mean? Why doesn't he just say one well, more who is himself echoing? All the prophets of the Old Testament, and John was the person who people believed. Chapter 3. By those religious leaders, later in chapter 7, and killed. So John is this martyr, and Jesus hangs the question, by what authority, on John and the testimony of the prophets. And you can tell he strikes a nerve because of their response in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. If they say, yes, John's baptism was God's work from heaven, then checkmate. Jesus wins. Case dismissed. But if they say, no, it was all just an act, then the courtroom kind of jumps over the bench and kills the prosecutors. So in verse 7, they say, we don't know. And here's why. They don't actually care about a correct verdict. They know what verdict they want, but they fear the people, so they back down with a shrug. And so Jesus responds in verse 8 with his own shrug. I'm not going to answer your question. Now, how would the original audience interpret that? Well, two things we see. First, we see how little Jesus cares about people's perception of him, especially those who reject him. It does not stop him from his mission. Secondly, though, and this is where I'll spend more of my time, we see how enemies of Jesus think. Look at how much here in the text they fear people, and yet how little they fear God. They're confronted with the prophets, with the testimonies, with a person who's providing overwhelming evidence And they shrug. They made an attempt to take God's son and convict him. And they can't. And so Jesus' response is to convict them. What does this mean for us? As we see this interaction. Well first let me speak to those of you who would profess to know Christ. We don't need to place our stock. In people's perception of Jesus. In fact, we shouldn't do that. Instead, let us appeal to Scripture. Let us appeal to the prophets. Let us appeal to the accurate accounts. We can stand on those. The words of the prophets. The people who died so you can hold your Bible. You can stand on that. Jesus puts his stock in God's mission accomplished through the prophets. That's how sure it is. And so this also means that his enemies of the gospel likewise try to, they can't. Fairly, anyway. (laughs) So friends, don't be fooled in your day-to-day lives in person, on the internet, around family. Don't be fooled into thinking you constantly need to be on the defense because you are a cultural minority. Let me give you an example in tune with this text. Say somebody fires a loaded question at you. They're not just saying, hey, you know, who is God with the Bible? But somebody fires a loaded question at you like this. They say, what kind of closed-minded God would send some people to hell? Say they fire that at you. Now, if somebody does that, what are you tempted to do? You're tempted to say, if you're afraid of them, kind of hedge your answer. Or sadly, guess what you'll say? I don't know. I don't know. Now, if you're new to Christianity, I'll give you a free pass. (laughs) Maybe you haven't read that passage yet, but now you know. You can't say that anymore. But if you do, if you do say, I don't know, or you hedge your bets, or you start to water down your testimony for fear of what people think, you're actually going to be the antithesis of Luke 6, which I just read before the sermon. You'll hate so much the idea Of having your name spurned, that in failing to answer or giving in, you will spurn the name of Jesus. Can I suggest a different approach when you're asked a loaded question like that? So if somebody fires a loaded question again, watch their body language. Make sure it's not an honest question. If they say, what kind of closed-minded God would send some people to hell? Try this answer. Answer their question with a question and ask this. And why should God let anybody into heaven? Ask him that. And then when they cock their eyes a little bit at you, go to scripture. Take them to the prophets. Don't place your stock in standing on your own two feet and winging it. Go to what's sound. Let them take it up with the Lord. It's not really your fight. You can't make them happy anyway. Only Jesus can do that. Now I have a thought for those of you who are kind of on the fence about Christianity. For you, the same principle applies. Beware the opinion of elites concerning Jesus. If you're listening to this or you're new here and you've got a lot of conflicting cultural thoughts about who Jesus is, may I ask you, have you read your Bible? Do you actually know who Jesus is or do you just think you know? why don't you just try starting in the book of Luke and read the first 19 chapters this week and come back and ask God to help you to see the real Jesus and talk with other people here. Or, as Tim Keller put it, describe the God you've rejected. Describe the God you don't believe in because maybe I don't believe that God either. It could be that you're rejecting a false God. You might be closer than you think. But look at scripture. Ask God to help you see. And don't let your fear of man hinder you from coming to Jesus. Friends, either way, you can't convict Jesus, even if you fail in these areas, but he can convict you and he will. One day, all of us are going to stand in front of God with no crowds to help us. And there will only be one hope and it will be Jesus. But what if he is not our hope? Let me continue with verses nine through 18. Verses nine through 18 of Luke chapter 20. And he, that's Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to to someone else, to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the second thing Luke is saying here is that you can't execute the executioner. So what's happening with this parable, this story? Well, after that awkward failed conviction where Jesus doesn't answer his accusers, Jesus. This turns around and continues to teach. No, really, look at verse 9. It doesn't say that the religious leaders left. They might still be standing there, shrugging. Either way, Jesus pays them no mind, and he continues with this strange parable, which isn't immediately explained, but it hides many good things that the crowd discovers And for you and I to discover about what Jesus is saying here. So let me just kind of abridge this parable and then I'd like to explain it using a little bit of context from the Old Testament. So a man plants a vineyard and goes away and he appoints tenants to take care for it, take care of it, and then he sends a servant to gather some crops and The servant is beaten, so the owner keeps sending servants, and they're beaten. Finally, the owner sends his son, but the son is killed in an attempt to overthrow the vineyard. So what will the owner do? He'll destroy the tenants and give the ownership to someone else. So who are the characters here? Can we know? I think we can. And we can use the book of Luke, and we can use the Old Testament. And I did, and here are my conclusions. So who's the owner of the vineyard and it's wicked tenants? Kind of the main characters, it would seem. Well, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, give us this picture of God talking about his people, and that's Israel. Here's Isaiah 5, 1 through 2. Let me sing for my beloved, my love, song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vet in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yield yielded wild grapes and in isaiah it's god talking about his people israel so the owner of the vineyard is god and the tenants are his people israel so god wanted a good crop and he set up everything they needed to make that happen but his tenants didn't care for it and they even rejected the follow-up of the concerned owner so who are the servants who are beaten by process of elimination it's the prophets prophets like isaiah himself who were sent to deliver that message i just read to israel as a warning the warning about the vineyard and yet isaiah himself was rejected by the people, even and especially the religious leaders. Some historical accounts say Isaiah was sawn in half. Others, other prophets were imprisoned, stoned, starved, or at the very least, rejected, cast out, ignored, excluded, reviled, Their names were spurned. Starting to get it? And so in light of all of that, it should be easy to see who the son is in the story. It's Jesus. And in this, and in this story, Jesus actually discreetly answers the question of the religious leaders from earlier. The authority question. His authority comes from God, his father, So that's why he's come to reform things. That's why he's come to the vineyard. That's why he came to the temple. That's why he's here in front of the crowd. That's why he's fixing things, because he made them. And that's not all. Hidden in this parable as well is a taste of what's to come. Jesus, as he's alluded to already in the book of Luke, Well, that should be killed by these wicked tenants, these religious leaders, these notable people, his own chosen. And so what will God do in response to that, according to Jesus here? He's going to judge and destroy those people, and he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. Or as we've seen already in Luke, Israel then is being rejected and the vineyard, the mission field of the owner will now be cared for, tended to by the nations, by Gentiles, by people like you and me. He made all things. He can move them around and reform them, can't he? So the response of the crowd in verse 16 to all this shows us three things. First, they understand what Jesus is saying. Part of that reason is the second thing we learned, they're very offended. Surely not. Surely you won't take what is ours and give it away and judge us. The third thing we learned is that like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, Jesus doesn't care about the crowd's approval either. Because in response to them, Jesus gives us an Old Testament quote that I'm going to spend a little time unpacking because it's the source of either hope or terror Depending on if the reader themselves respects Jesus or not. It's verse 17. Jesus looks at them and says, haven't you read? What does it mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now he mixes his metaphors a bit, but he's quoting Psalm 118 verse 22. In which the psalmist is happy that the Lord is his salvation. The Lord, God, Father and Son. So applied to this parable in Luke 20, both the Father, God, and the Son Jesus, who's being killed, are tied together to this salvation that the psalmist is so happy about. In other words, Jesus is going to die. And this death will both allow all nations to see salvation, and this will make Jesus the cornerstone of that salvation. In other words, Israel might kill him, or they might try to, but they can't really execute him. In fact, by attempting to do that, They're going to accomplish the plan of the Father. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus will die and this death will, will allow the plan to go forward. Israel can't execute him. In fact, by attempting to do it, they accomplished the plan. The son will not be smashed to rubble. He will be a cornerstone. Does that make sense? He won't be executed. Instead, according to this, he will execute. He will smash the rubble. And he's starting with Jerusalem. Jesus goes on in chapter 20, verse 18 to explain, if you fall on this stone, if you trip over it, you'll be broken to pieces. And if it falls on you, you'll be crushed. Now, for just a little bit more context here, thanks for bearing with me. Let me read Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15 to just give us a little bit more clarity on what's being revealed here. Isaiah 8, verses 13 through 15. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. And they shall be snared and taken. This is refer back to when Babylon overthrew Israel. This is Jesus saying, you've been tripping over everything the whole time, and here you are tripping over me again, but it won't stop the plan from going forward. You think you're stopping God's plan, you will be stopped. In other words, when people miss who Jesus is, they don't believe he's the cornerstone, if they don't respect The son, they are the ones who will be destroyed. Now, what does this mean for the original audience? As we've already seen allusions to in Luke and even in Isaiah, Jerusalem, the holy city of Israel and its temple, will be destroyed. And that happened Happened around 70 A.D. And again, in a bit of spiritual judo, what happened is this scattered real quest Christians over the world. Did it look like they were being destroyed? Yeah. What happened? That's why we're here. Because like Jesus, no matter how much people tried to convict them, didn't work. How much they tried to be executed, didn't happen. No matter how much they were opposed, they were faithful because they were not afraid of the perception of Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's your last point, and it is very short. Respect Jesus. That's the only thing you can do. Look at his mission. It's reaching the world, which he laid forth in Matthew 28 and elsewhere, by handing out all authority from his father. He's behind this mission. And he's telling you, if you claim to be his, if you claim to respect him, he's calling you to be a part of it. And so what this causes people to do who follow Jesus is to live a life of boldness, just like we see here, speaking the truth, not being swayed by public opinion. But you know what? You know how the vineyard is best watered? It's watered by those who, like Jesus, would die for their enemies, who would give their lives so that others would live. You get it? So you're not a coward. You're not sitting there saying, I don't know. But you're also not out there just like killing people who disagree with you. In fact, you're dying for them. That's why Jesus said, follow me. You get it? And when you do that, I don't know about you, but when you get kind of like called out on the internet, (laughs) you know, or somebody tries to stop you or, or even, you know, if, If one of us were to be martyred, you know what we'd think? We'd be tempted to think, we're losing. No, we're not. No, we're not. Now, if you're in Christ and you respect him, and he's your savior and Lord, congratulations. Like Jesus, you can't really be convicted or killed either. They can do it unfairly, They can try to do it. You might actually look dead, but as elsewhere we read, you're sleeping, in a manner of speaking. Now as you speak the truth in love, of course, I'll be honest, people are going to try to convict you. They won't be able to do it, fairly. And you might even be killed. Just like we read in Luke 6, your reward in heaven will be great. You will not get one here. It's okay. You don't want what this world has to offer for a reward. You won't really be smashed to pieces either. Can I ask you to think about that more than you do? It's about you, but people going around wearing masks, Think about death a lot. Or maybe you think about your freedoms being taken away and then dying. Whatever. Whatever. We're all in the same boat. (laughs) You're all thinking about losing something. But can I ask you to think about your heavenly reward more than you do? And let that spur you to remember that no matter how massive the crowds are against you, assuming you're speaking the truth, of course, No matter how massive those crowds are against you, let me remind you that to be hidden in Christ, that's the safe place to be. Alone with Christ, as opposed to be with the rest of the world. That's why we read elsewhere, broad is the road to destruction. Don't trust in the broad road. Being in Christ is the only safe to be, safe place to be when God's wrath falls on the earth. Now, for those of you who are new to the church or or exploring it, like, I am glad you're here. (laughs) I'm very glad you're here. Please, read your Bible. Please, keep asking questions and talking to people here. But if you are lingering and delaying because of what you hear from the crowds, let me ask you a question. Do you feel safe? Because you are not safe hanging on the fence there. The crowds are nothing when judgment comes. Now, please, don't simply bend to this church either. You know? Don't join because of peer pressure. Don't make us the crowds. Read for yourself. Pray to God yourself. Simply read God's word and ask him to reveal himself to you. And if he wants to, he will. Do not follow the peer pressure, even of us. Because you know what? If you become a Christian, I don't get a bonus. Nobody here gets a paycheck. (laughs) We get nothing out of it other than another worker with us and another person rejoicing around the throne of God. Let me tell you, that is a better payoff. Friends, in conclusion, please, go love people. Go be kind, generous, preferring them, loving them as you would have them love you. Do that. But don't miss the opportunity to tell them the thing they need to hear most. The wrath of God is coming on those who do not trust in Jesus. But it doesn't have to. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word, which is clear if our eyes are open. Lord, I do know that there are many around the world, even sadly some who are filling To fear you, the standards of the cause us to fear you and nothing else, so that we can go out there to love and to care for people and help them to run from the wrath of God and towards the safest place, which is in the presence of Christ Jesus forever. Amen.